Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queens Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Let me say thanks, Taiwo, and thank you again for, for being here today. Warm welcome if anyone walked in the room over the last few minutes since we've begun. Um, wow, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a page of scripture, right? I mean, that sounds pretty pessimistic. It sounds like uh, our authors slipped off into some cynicism. Um, for anyone might be expecting to come to church to find some encouragement and some help or some hope, uh, we might be wondering how we're going to get there after a reading like that. But let me provide a little bit of a running start for us, especially in case this is your first time being here. Um, you can understand what's, what we've been studying and what's been happening so far in this book. His name is Solomon, and he's the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes tells us some of his personal diary entries in his journey through this war zone called life. Solomon was richer than anyone who's ever lived. He had more power, more fame, more might, more military control than anyone of his time. He governed in a time of peace, and he has every reason to believe if anyone could have a good life and have a good run at this thing under the sun, it's him. And Solomon tried. He actually sipped away into what the Bible would call a season of sin. He lived away from God for a season, and he was intentionally trying to find some type of soul satisfaction apart from God. And he came up empty. He came up broke again and again and again. And that is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. We understand he actually got right with God in the end, and he writes this to be a bit of perspective to us who aren't as rich as he is. We don't have as much power as he has. We don't have the fame, the military control, and the governance that he does. And he writes a word to us who will spend our days longing and striving and seeking and never be able to get to where he was to tell us this is the map to joy. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, he tells us that God knows what he's doing. And he sends different times and he sends different seasons upon everybody that lives on this earth. And last week in this room, we, we looked at it and we considered God does know what he's doing. He is there. His plan is beautiful and he is promising to make everything beautiful when the time is just right. But Solomon almost knows us better than we would know ourselves. He at least knows us well enough to know what we, would, what we would object to such a thought. So Solomon then responds, he follows with chapter 3, verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 16, and he starts unpacking six apparent anomalies in this world. It makes sense, right? If his thesis is God is there, God is in control of every bit that happens across our lives. He is good, and he's going to make all of this turn out for good for those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. Well, surely there's going to be something that rises up inside of each and every one of us. One of the plain facts of our lives, we're going to point to something and say, if he's really there and if he's really good, then why did this happen to me? 
We're going to ask the question, if he's really there and if he's really good, then how are they in power right now? And on and on and on. So I want to speak with you. With that in mind, I want to speak with you on this theme of under the loom for just a few minutes. Um, For those of us who were born when Google and microwaves were a thing, let me give some background information, okay? Um, Your clothes that you're wearing, like the the rug in your house, if you have one, maybe your neighbor's house, the fabric on the sofa that you fell asleep drooling and sleeping on last night, it's traditionally produced through a loom. Let me show you a loom. A loom looks something like this, a bit of an old school material, be able to spin up some fabric and actually make an incredible rug or a beautiful tapestry. And it's, and it's all good when you have his perspective because he's looking down on the situation. He can see where the yarns are. He can see where the yarns aren't. But if you were to go beneath this and if you were to look up at what's being created, life under the loom, it wouldn't be beautiful like that. Life under the loom is, is, is yarn, it's dust, it's snarls, it's knots, it's a ton of loose ends, and you're just looking at it thinking, how could all of this ever be reconciled into anything to be worthwhile? Life under the loom. We live our lives under the loom. We live our lives under the sun. We live our lives as finite creatures. We are not infinite. We don't have all the information. Sometimes it feels like we live our lives looking up and God says, I'm spinning something beautiful. You're going to love it when we're done. And we look up and we just see, I'm sorry, all I'm getting is a ton of loose ends and like yarn in my eyeball. (laughs) How is all of this working out? That is a bit of the emotional pull that Solomon has in mind when he gives us these next few verses of scripture. See, friend, the, the truth is God does work everything out. All things will be fitting. In the end, all things will be beautiful. Life will turn out to be a bit of a mosaic that could only have been put together by the creator, designer, artist, God himself. Paul assures us in Romans 8, 28, that all things, they will work together for good for those who love God and who have been called according to his purposes. But Solomon, our our tour guide with regards to the realities of life, he intends something very good for us this afternoon. Very good for a group of people gathered up in Queens Park. Very good for a group of people living life in London with everything looming over us. Solomon is intent to take away any sort of rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life Solomon is eager to come to the believer this afternoon and to take away inevitable cynicism and inevitable bitterness that will come our way if we forget it is indeed God who is up there spinning up something beautiful, even though there are many times when we can't tell what he's doing at all. We catch a running start with chapter 3, verses 14 and 18. It says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear Him. And here's where we're going. God uses the very crooked, perplexing, inscrutable nature of this world 
as a means of breaking humanity's pride and passion to control in order to replace that with a reverent fear in God. Part of what God is doing in allowing some of the things to happen the way they are, he's allowing them to happen to break our pride, to break our great desire to understand everything and control everything. God knows what he's doing with us. Solomon's aiming to reduce our self-reliance and to increase our faith. So let's follow him along these crooked things that God is straightening out. Let's follow him through six crooked things that God will straighten out. First, notice in verses 16 and 17, God will execute justice on the unjust governments. This is the judicial test. As soon as he gets done saying, God is in control of the whole thing. It doesn't take long for somebody to scroll Twitter and to see the, see the latest enslaving of someone else, the latest war breakout, the latest knife crime, the latest violence. And think, how can God be up there if these wicked leaders are sitting there? That's the point. He knows we're going to think this, so he just runs ahead and he names the issue for us. The issue in verses 16 and 17, look at it with your eyes, is unrighteousness in the halls of government, wickedness in the halls of government. Now, I'm not making any political statements about this government, that government. He's, he's American. He's talking about this one. He's here. But he's talking about, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, in a general sense, there are people in control. There are people that inevitably make their ways to positions of power that are not just. They are unjust. And before cynicism rises up in the heart of a Christian, where a Christian looks at God and questions whether God actually knows what he's doing by allowing that very thing to take place, we get these words. Solomon knew many who twisted words behind the bench. The, the wickedness of some judges and rulers on this earth, it provides material slander against the truth that he just gave. Solomon points out that God will put it all to right in the final judgment. This is a theme we're going to see in a couple weeks when you get over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, the author says something that makes a lot of translators of Hebrew choke on it. He says God owns the tribunal and God will execute his own judgment on it one day. So the check that God provides against tyranny in the courts is a knowledge of coming judgment. And that's something that's actually handed over to the people of God. It's actually given time and time again throughout the Old Testament as a warning against the nations. God will judge. Bit of a mixed bag this afternoon. I mean, we're a diverse crowd coming in from different places. There's some of us that might hear that and think, oh, let's, let's, let's like edit that out. Let's, let's edit the idea of God having wrath and God having judgment. No, 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 he's a God of love. Yes, he is a God of love. And his love costs something. His love cost Jesus on the cross for sinners like me and you. Oh, no, so there's no editing this out. Not if you want him to be loving. And there's certainly no editing this out if we want any comfort and solace. As wicked people sit in different governments and they sit in different benches and they have different positions of power. There's no hope if God isn't one day going to judge every action for wrong and right. So the knowledge of ultimate justice, it puts every judicial monstrosity in perspective. 
And this is what this is part of what God has to say. We we look, we're like, him, her, them again? The word from God is that a judgment is coming, and I will judge the judges one day. And there, as soon as we hear it, we we get the sense God's going to execute judgment there. I, I don't have to. He will. So the check that God provides against tyranny in the courts is knowledge of a coming judgment. This knowledge of ultimate justice is the check and actually the comfort for the Christian. And he keeps going. Look at verses 18 to 21. God gives meaning to life in the face of death. This is the morality test. That was the judicial test. This is the morality test. Death is coming to us all. And the author, you can tell, he's, he's anticipating where we might be. We're thinking like, how does God have a good plan? Like, we, we all die. Like, the dog dies and the owner of the dog dies as well. How is this God's good plan? We find the source of death. We got to go all the way back to Genesis. And we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that God created a good world made for relationship. We wanted to have harmony and flourishing and peace with His people. But His people wouldn't have it. His people wanted to go their own way. They wanted to try to figure out life without God. And when His people disobeyed Him, they turned their back on Him. Humanity are the ones we brought sin into the world and we brought sin into ourselves. It's been the same ever since. Well, the wages of sin is death. The holy God's not going to live forever with unholy people. So somehow this whole thing has to get reconciled. And that is the major tension of the text of Scripture. You can hear him though. Well, the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the animal goes down. But who knows this? And what he's saying here, this isn't the type of information that we don't know. And we're just going to be open to theologize however we want. We can kind of like make up our own picture of God. The point is that God knows about the workings of a little dog and He knows about the workings of its owner. And God knows this. Man doesn't know this. It's yet another part of reality that God confronts us with to bring down our self-reliance and to increase our faith. We know we're in a separate category from animals. So the answer to the morality objection against what He's already stated in verses 1-15 to is that God bestows knowledge of our life after death. And that's the comfort. So Solomon ends with the rhetorical question, who can, who can know what will be after him? And the implied answer is that no one, no one, no man, no human can see this present life that's to come. But only God can. And we can almost feel some of our self-reliance even falling away even there, Right? When we die, that's it. And the whole world's going to keep going. Yet God, God knows what's going on. Only God who knows the future can show this to a person. And at this point in time, God is choosing to leave many in the dark and not tell them. He deliberately leaves it a mystery to man. Man must trust in faith in God to do what is right in the end. Next, number three, God comforts His people while they are oppressed. This is an issue of oppression in verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. Just look at these together. He's just going around and he's like, God has a good plan. He's going to make everything beautiful. He's going to make everything right. And it just rises up in us. God, why are your people oppressed? 
this is your good plan? This is, this is your grand idea? You're going to leave people oppressed and enslaved? What are you doing? Here, men are not only oppressed by the courts, they are oppressed generally through their lives and in business. They're oppressed in marriage. Not talking about mine, okay. but they're oppressed in various relationships. They're oppressed by people in power. It's getting into the idea different from idea one. Life's a bit of a grind, isn't it? I mean, not many of us like seeing, seeing news of the pound and seeing news of energy bills. We're just thinking it's going to be awesome, you know? Nobody's thinking that. It's a bit of a grind. Things aren't really working out. They're kind of coming undone. And the answer that we get in verses 1 through 3 is that God promises to comfort His people in the midst of their oppression. You notice how God's doing that time and time again throughout Scripture? He's oftentimes not like giving people a new set of circumstances. He's giving them a new perspective in the midst of their circumstances. And this is what God says He's going to do right here in verses 1, 2, and 3. God Himself will be there and God Himself will comfort His people while He allows them to experience various forms of oppression. Then check it out. Number four, God provides satisfaction for us in our own toil. Verses four through six. This idea of envy from, from, from other people. Men are envious and men are lazy. So if you check this out, verses four through six is kind of a thing and then verses seven through 12 is a bit of a thing as well. Uh, verse 4 in chapter 4, and I saw all the toil and all the achievement that spring from a person's envy of another. This too is meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands. They ruin themselves. Better than is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with a heart full of toil and chasing after the wind. It's the, it's the flip side of what we just saw at the top of the deck today. The powerful king Kicking the powerless. Here we see the powerless spitting at those who have exercised creative dominion over him. A wise man hates all form of envies, what the Bible is trying to commend to us. And the answer given by Solomon here is that God promises to provide satisfaction to people in their own toil, in their own labor. It seems like a crooked thing, though. People were envious. And being envious, some of us kind of go lay down and take a nap. And being envious, some of us just get going and we put ourselves on this course of war and we won't stop working. We won't start hustling. We won't start the saving until the kingdom is built all around us. But then look at verses 7 through 12. God offers companionship in a world full of isolation. Isolation and solitariness is what God offers to us. What you get in Ecclesiastes from, from chapter 4, verse 4, and then he picks up the theme in verses 7 through 12. You get the picture of someone who has envy in their heart. And envy in their heart has driven them to work themselves to the bone. Man was built for community. We were built to know God and have space for God. We were built to know one another and have space for one another in our lives. Working together can be satisfying, 
Working together can be fruitful. Working together can prevent from harm. Working together can keep warm. Working together can be a defense. Working together can maintain unity. This is what we see in verses 9 through 12. But consider the one that's actually presented to us here, and he's presented to us as a fool. A man works hard. He makes a pile. He doesn't stop to ask the very basic question. Why am I doing this? No, instead he just goes. He makes stacks of money, yet he has nobody to share it with. He, can afford, he can't afford to marry, and he can't afford to have kids because a marriage and kids would take away from his money. No, he's already named his God, and he's spending everything in his life around it. He can't afford to have friends because all their motives would become suspect to him. He could buy dinner for everybody in the restaurant, but the problem with this cat is nobody in the restaurant wants to sit at his table. Because look at him. He's driven. No, he's, he's, he's overdoing it so much that there's no capacity for a healthy marriage. There's no capacity for a few friends. There's no capacity to stopping, slowing down, and just having some food and having some drink and enjoying that is the gift of God. No, because what we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, while this is God's good world, while God knows exactly what he is doing with each and every one of us, there is something inside of us that without God, we will turn this whole thing that God is running, we will turn this into a pursuit of gains and profits instead of accepting it as just a gift that he's given us for just a little while. We ought to remember friendship when it came to Jesus. Jesus is there. Jesus was a friend to sinners in Matthew 11, verse 19, and in Luke chapter 7, verse 43. One of the climactic moments in Ecclesiastes is when the, the preacher, the teacher here, he goes through this gospel arithmetic to help us understand we're going to be better together. It's been said if you want to go, if, if, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. The Bible has a lot to say to this. Jesus says that his church, we are not simply his servants, but we are truly his friends. We find the greatest reward, not in the individual paychecks that we bring home, though, though that's fulfilling. We find the greatest reward in being his people and working together in his mission, leveraging everything in our lives. So other people can know him and other people can love him and other people can experience his love and his acceptance in their life like we have experienced in ours. So Jesus is the friend we need most of all. Just on, right now on the spot, like in this room, like if, if you experienced friendship with Jesus, if you experienced his love and his acceptance in your life, his companionship, he's there. Yet a curse resides, which prevents people from forming friendships, and an element of the curse is envy. We refuse to accept all of this as gift. We insist on turning it all into a, a competition for games and gain. And it's a crooked thing. And God offers us companionship if we will just accept it. The sixth and final bit is this. God accepts people in a world of frantic popularity. 
You got to remember, King Solomon's writing towards the end of his days. I mean, he knew what it was to be king in his 30s and his 40s. And now that clock's starting to expire. It's wisdom of that man that puts verses 13, 15, and 16 together where he can look at us and he can just give us a warning. While, look, in God's incredible grace, a lot of, a lot of young ones in the room today, relatively speaking, we feel like we're kind of on our way up, not on our way down. Hear this wisdom from King Solomon. Popularity is only temporary. Hear it from one of the greatest people who ever lived. He had to have this in mind. There's going to be another king. He's going to grow too self-confident. He's going to feel like he doesn't need any advisors. He's going to feel all that wave of favor and pleasure when his new regime takes over. Despite his humble origins, the crowd's going to flock to the newcomer. But here's how the world works. Remember chapters 1 and 2? This whole thing's on a cycle. He'll go up for a season, but he too's going to plateau, and he's going to go falling off. And the young cat that everybody rallied around, eventually people are going to be saying, maybe it's about time for somebody new to lead this thing. Meanwhile, there's God who offers to accept us right where we are. He offers something better than popularity, which is only temporary. He offers acceptance of his people. Kings are going to come and kings are going to go. Trends are going to come and trends are going to go. And Solomon was well enough aware of the fickleness of people. The old foolish king is soon going to be forgotten. People are fickle. Today's hero is tomorrow's bum. But there's God who's above it all, looming it all. And it's a word of invitation and wisdom to us. So look, believe it or not, I'm almost done preaching the sermon, so... Natalie, why don't you come up? That was a, I expected more from some of you in the room. No, that's fine. Um, hear this. Verse 15 is actually the hinge then. Verse 15, that word that looks us back into God's beautiful plan, and then it looks us ahead into what happens next. Verse 15 says, God seeks what has been driven away. This seems to be a poetic way of talking about the things that have happened in the past. There's something about each and every one of us that we want to think, Bygone days are just gone. But this verse tells us that God is looking to recover the past. And this is a point where some of us in this room can swell with some hope. Because the language of God is so positive that this verse suggests that God is looking to redeem the past. God is looking not just to render judgment. By His grace, God wants to recover and restore what seems from our vantage point beneath the loom to be worthless. Eternal redemption is what we're hoping for. Eternal redemption is what we're banking in. And the God who endures forever, the God who is working all the time, while we just take naps underneath the loom because the heaviness and toil of this world just wears us out. He has a plan and he is unfolding it. And key to his plan is that he seeks after those things that have been driven away. Some of us this afternoon, we feel like one of those that have just been blown away. We've just been driven away. The word of God is that he seeks after you like a shepherd life under the loom life under the sun it can produce incredible tapestries like this and all the while you're, you're underneath it and you're just like 
Lord, I, I don't understand. Like, what are we doing with the deep reds? We're in the blues. Like, why are you bringing deep red into my situation right now? But the artist above, the artist, artist can see the final picture. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing by allowing some reds to spin in on us. He knows what he's doing when he takes us away from one season and he moves us into another because he has a message he wants to communicate. He knows what he's doing. Jesus' own followers knew only bits of the story while they were in it. But it actually led to this scene in Acts chapter 4 where they go to the man who was, who was lame. He was poor. He didn't have anything. And they'd be a blessing to him all because Jesus knew what he was doing in their lives all along. Every bit of God's working in this world, it leads us to different depths of unsearchableness about who our God is. We look around, we're like, that's a contradiction. This is looking like an anomaly. If you're in my life, how is this actually happening? And yet the point is that God intends us to lead us into these places where we realize, I can't figure it all out. I don't know. I don't know how God's going to work this bit. But I trust that we are only under the loom and he is above it and he has a plan. I'll say it like this. Our incapacity to shepherd or control reality should humble us in a way that generates a righteous fear of the one who has effectively been shepherding things for all time. And listen, we're hearing this as some, some people just kind of getting pounded while we, we live under the loom. But Jesus would want us to know that he is not only the shepherd, but he has people outside the fold that he intends to bring in. He says, I have sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice. So they can be one flock and one shepherd. And this is our mission. This is what we're trying to do. Have one flock, like a church, a home, a harbor in Queens Park for the people around here to be able to know there's hope beyond the loom. There's hope beyond the sun. And we have found it. Brother, He has found us. And we have been changed. So here's comfort all across the room today. Jesus says to us, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's a shepherd leading us under the loom. He says, I'll give them eternal life and they'll never perish. No matter what is happening in your life, no matter what falls in your eyes, you live beneath the loom. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will snatch them out of my father's hand because I and the father am one. And being a Christian is learning to say, in the midst of difficulty, God's got it. It's well. It's not being able to explain everything away. It's having faith in Him while the situation looks dark. God allows things we would never ask for to accomplish things we cannot imagine. William Cowper, William Cooper, lived a tormented life. He wrote a poem as one of the last things that he'd ever write, and I leave you with his words. Cooper says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy. 
and shall break in blessings on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides his smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. May he make it plain to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our times are in your hands. We are not as in the control of this life and situation as we want to be. We thank you that through your word you are, and through faith in you, you will give us the ability to see and to endure until we are shepherded all the way home by our King, Jesus Christ, in the end. Father, I pray for comfort in this room to different pain points that I know are real. Father, I pray that you give perspective to your people. Would you show us mercy? Father, we thank you for your word that is strong and it is true and it is sure. We pray that you would lead us into your word. You'd help us to rest and trust in your many promises in this week ahead. Father, for here and now, we ask for the courage and the strength to stand and to sing. It is well. So help us to believe it and help us to sing it from a full heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please go ahead, stand up.